0: House will return Wednesday and stay in session through Friday. The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday if they can find a way to pass a spending bill before Friday. Last week on the House floor, the only thing of substance was on Wednesday, the House took up the conference report to accompany H.R. 2, the farm bill. The bill passed by a vote, or the conference report passed by a vote of 369 to 47. This week on the House floor, as I said, they will return on Wednesday. The floor schedule is still to be determined, but at some point we expect that they will be taking up some kind of spending bill, either a continuing resolution or a minibus. Uh, Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate returned on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of George Muzinich to be Deputy Secretary of the Treasury. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position by a vote of 55 to 44. Later Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm Jonathan Cobes to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The vote was 50 to 50, and necessitated a tie-breaking vote by Vice President Pence. Then the Senate took up the conference report to accompany HR2, the Farm Bill. That passed by a vote of 87 to 13. On Wednesday, the Senate took up SJ Res 64, the Tester Wyden Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval, overturning the new IRS rule, that relieves certain nonprofits of the burden of filing their top donors' names and addresses with their tax returns. We discussed that last week. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine crossed party lines to vote with the Democrats on this one. And Republican Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina was once again absent for the vote. So the resolution passed by a vote of 50 to 49. I do not expect this CRA resolution of disapproval to see the light of day in the House during the 115th Congress. Later on Wednesday, the Senate took up the motion to proceed to consideration of SJ Res 54, a joint resolution to direct the removal of United States armed forces from hostilities in the Republic of Yemen that have not been authorized by Congress. After considering several amendments, the Senate voted to pass the resolution on Thursday by a vote of 56 to 41. The Senate also considered and passed, by voice vote, SJ Rez 69, a Corker-McConnell joint resolution supporting a diplomatic solution in Yemen and condemning the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, the Senate will return Monday and will take up S-756, the legislative vehicle for the First Step Act the bipartisan criminal justice reform bill the president endorsed several weeks ago. At some point, the Senate will take up a funding bill. We'll get to that in a few moments. To criminal justice reform. Last week, Senate Majority Leader McConnell announced that the Senate would, in fact, take up S-756, the legislative vehicle that will be used to consider the First Step Act a criminal justice reform bill that has split the Senate GOP. It was endorsed by President Trump two weeks ago, but McConnell has been reluctant to schedule floor time for it, given the fact that it splits the Senate Republican caucus. Senators Tom Cotton of Arkansas and John Kennedy of Louisiana are strongly opposed to the bill in its current form, but Senator Mike Lee is strongly in favor of it. To leadership elections, Nancy Pelosi cut a deal with several of the rebels and assured she would be elected speaker on January 3rd on the first ballot. Under the agreement, she agreed to impose term limits on herself. Going forward under the deal, if the House Democratic Caucus approves, the top three leaders in the Democrat Party would be limited to serving no more than three terms in their positions with an option for a fourth term if two-thirds of the caucus agrees. The term limits would be retroactive too, which would mean that the two terms Pelosi already served as Speaker from 2011 to 2000, I'm sorry, from 2007 to 2011 would be counted against her possible four-term limit. So she's got at most two more terms as Speaker beginning in January. She agreed to abide by the term limits even if the full House Democratic Caucus decides against adopting that rule change. And incoming majority leader Steny Hoyer made clear she was negotiating for herself and he opposes the term limits proposal. House Democrats will vote on the change to their party rules in February. On the Obamacare front, on Friday, U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor ruled in the case of Texas versus Azar, the legal challenge to Obamacare filed by 20 states. Judge O'Connor ruled that because Texas, because Congress had in 2017 zeroed out the tax penalty associated with the individual mandate, it was no longer a tax and that because it was no longer a tax, it was no longer constitutional and because it was no longer constitutional, it had to be overturned and because it was overturned and the rest of the law rested on the individual mandate as a core element of its operation, the entire law had to be considered unconstitutional. I will remind you, I am not a lawyer but I know some really good ones, and many of them are convinced Judge O'Connor's ruling will be overturned. Their arguments rest on two basic contentions. First, that contrary to the judge's reasoning, the states do not have standing to bring such a lawsuit. Since Congress changed the tax penalty to zero, no one is being hurt. Because no one is being hurt, no one has standing to sue. Judge O'Connor addressed that argument and reasoned that there actually are two parts of the law in question, the individual mandate itself and the so-called shared responsibility payments, the euphemism given to the tax penalty incurred for not purchasing an Obamacare compliant plan if you're in the subject class. Congress in 2017 in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act did not address the individual mandate requirement, because the 2017 TCGA was a reconciliation bill that couldn't address policy. It could only address taxes and spending. So Congress in 2017 focused on the taxes part of the equation and set the shared responsibility payment to zero. O'Connor reasons that even though no one can be said to be harmed economically by the law because the tax penalty has now been set to zero, they can still be harmed psychologically because the individual mandate itself still exists. And some people actually care for the value of following the law, even if there's no economic penalty for violating it. That's interesting reasoning, but I'm not sure how superior courts will view it. The second argument goes to the severability analysis. O'Connor went back to the arguments made in the two earlier Obamacare challenges that went to the Supreme Court and cited representations made by the law's proponents that the individual mandate was essential to the operation of the law. If the individual mandate fell, he reasoned, then the entire law had to fall. But critics point out that later Congresses are not bound by the action of of earlier Congresses. And when the Congress in 2017 passed a new law that zeroed out the tax penalty, that later Congress was essentially rejecting the view of the earlier Congress that passed Obamacare in the first place. By passing a law amending a key part of Obamacare but leaving the rest of the law in place, That newer Congress was declaring its belief that the law can function without the individual mandate in place. Others think the O'Connor ruling will stand. I've put one of the best analyses analyses that I've seen along these lines, written by Josh Blackman, in the suggested reading. President George W. Bush appointed Judge O'Connor. Unlike many liberal judges we've seen over the last two years, he did not feel a need to emplace a strict injunction against the continued operation of the law while his ruling is appealed. So, for now, the law will remain in place while appeals are filed and argued. I fully expect this decision will ultimately go one way or the other to the Supreme Court. To the Russia hoax, though it is not part of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, it was handed off to federal prosecutors in the Office of the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York some time ago, I do want to briefly comment on the decision by former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen to plead guilty to campaign finance violations involving payoffs to two women who claimed to have had extramarital affairs with Donald Trump more than a dozen years ago. There are serious questions regarding the legal jeopardy in which President Trump may or may not find himself, depending upon whom you talk to. When Cohen declared in his court filing that he had been directed to violate the law by then-candidate Donald Trump, Democrats and the media predictably went nuts but they may have celebrated too early. The simple fact that Cohen and the prosecutors agree that something is a violation of the law does not necessarily make it so, especially in an area as complicated as campaign finance. Under the reasoning of the SDNY prosecutors and Cohen, paying off a mistress to conceal an affair is a legitimate campaign expense. What Cohen got in trouble for is not reporting the payment. Well, that's ludicrous on its face. The Federal Election Commission has made very clear what is and what is not a legitimate campaign expense. If the expense in question is something that would exist irrespective of the fact of the campaign, it's a personal expense. If the expense is something that would not have occurred without the fact of the campaign, then it's a campaign expense. Dry cleaning a candidate's suits and starching his shirts certainly would make him appear more presentable and attractive as a candidate and might therefore be presumed to be a legitimate campaign expense by some. But the candidate presumably would have had his dry cleaning and shirt starching done professionally in the absence of the campaign too. So that is not a legitimate campaign expense. Some of you may remember a somewhat similar campaign finance case that took place years ago. In the aftermath of the 2008 race for president, we learned that John Edwards had convinced an angel donor to provide a million dollars to pay off his mistress. He was prosecuted for violating campaign finance laws. The jury acquitted him on one charge and deadlocked on the other five, and the prosecutors decided not to retry him on the five counts. Stay tuned. On the spending front, last Tuesday, President Trump met at the White House with incoming House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer to negotiate the end-of-year spending bill that still needs to be passed to keep part of the government open beyond Friday. In a riveting 17-minute exchange that took place in front of the cameras, The president insisted that they agree to give him the $5 billion for wall funding that he's been demanding for several months now. They flatly refused. He said he would be, quote, proud, unquote, to shut down the government over the lack of funding for a border wall. The two Democrats seemed delighted, even if a little flustered. At one point, Pelosi suggested that such negotiations were better done behind closed doors. Following the media, I'm sorry, following the meeting, Democrats and the media predictably went nuts. Usually, they all pointed out, when a government shutdown showdown takes place, each side tries to seem reasonable and make sure the blame for the shutdown is placed on the other party. But in this instance, the president not only did not try to blame the Democrats for the shutdown to be, he actually said he would be proud to shoulder the burden of blame if a shutdown were to occur. Congressional Republicans, including Senate Majority Leader McConnell, who never met a shutdown he liked, And outgoing Speaker Paul Ryan, who doesn't want a shutdown to occur on his watch as he's heading out the door, are desperately trying to come up with some gambit to keep the government funded. Two days after the meeting, President Trump tweeted an indication that perhaps he wasn't so sure about wanting to take the blame for a shutdown. In a video posted on Twitter, he attacked Democrats as, quote, absolute hypocrites and pointed out that they had supported funding physical barriers previously, but suggested that now they would not solely because of their opposition to him. The video contained a caption that read, let's not do a shutdown, Democrats. Do what's right for the American people. Meanwhile, House Republican leaders are still trying to figure out a strategy. Some want to pass a funding bill that includes $5 billion in wall funding and send it over to the Senate just to prove that, contrary to Pelosi's belief, they can pass that bill through the House. But there are two arguments against that. First, given that it's the end of a Congress where Republicans just lost 40 seats in the House and many of those departing members have no desire to be hanging around any longer, there might actually be difficulty in getting to 218 votes on such a bill. Second, uh, given that the bill would surely be filibustered and killed in the Senate, why would you ask your remaining members to take a tough vote on a bill that's guaranteed to go nowhere in the Senate? So others in the House Republican leadership are thinking instead about another short-term continuing resolution that would fund the government into the new year, at which point the Democrats would take over in the House. Of course, if that happens, the president will not get the $5 billion in funding he seeks. This is a tough situation. The Democrats have the absolute power to block the funding bill in the Senate if they want to, and they have absolutely no incentive to back down. Pelosi won't back down either. On the other hand, President Trump appears to have opened the door just a touch. So we don't know what's going to happen here. I would put the odds at two to one that we go into the weekend without an agreement on a funding bill and we have at least a few days of shutdown but that's wholly dependent on President Trump maintaining a stiff spine. If he concludes in the next few days that his fortunes are better off without a shutdown, look for him to make an accommodation of some sort with Pelosi and Schumer. Finally, to the staffing front, President Trump announced on Friday that Mick Mulvaney, the former House Freedom Freedom Caucus co-founder who currently serves as director of the Office of Management and Budget and acting director, of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau will take on new responsibilities as acting White House Chief of Staff when General John Kelly leaves after the holidays. On Saturday, President Trump announced that Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke would be leaving the Trump administration at the end of the year. He did not say whether Zinke resigned or was fired, but either way, it was clear that Zinke was in for tough sledding in a new Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. He's been the subject of several ethics investigations, and the toll on his personal finances was about to become much higher. That's our Washington Report for this week.